Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work... Go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. This episode is brought to you by PipeDrive, the easy and effective CRM for closing more deals and driving small business growth. New year, new targets. PipeDrive allows you to automate your sales process so you can focus on your other business priorities in 2024. With PipeDrive, you can stay on top of your sales activities so you never miss a follow-up. So sign up today and get a special 60-day free trial now at pipedrive.com with the code BUILT. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Guy here. Over the past year, a lot of the founders who come on the show have told me how hard it is to ask for money. They have to sell their product or idea as an amazing investment, make it clear how they're going to use the money, give an impassioned pitch, but still risk getting door after door slammed in their face. And when people do give, friends, family, angel investors, VCs, whomever, our founders are overwhelmed with relief and gratitude. Well, before the end of what has been a pretty trying year for a lot of us, I would like to ask each of you to show your generosity and your appreciation for what we do by giving to your local NPR station. Many of you listen to the show from your favorite podcast app, but How I Built This is also a radio show that plays on NPR stations around the U.S. And those stations, along with our sponsors, directly support the work we do. So if you love this show and the stories we tell... I'm giving you my best pitch, so please be among the friends and family who give to our show by giving to your local member station. You can go to donate.npr.org built and give directly to a local NPR station. That's donate.npr.org built. And thanks. Okay, so on to the show. And first of all, I just want to wish everybody a happy holiday season. And thank you for being such incredible supporters of the show this year. Our team is taking a much-needed break. But this week, we wanted to revisit the story of Janice Bryant-Howroyd. And as you'll hear, there are a lot of reasons why her story is kind of the perfect way to end the year. This episode first ran about two years ago, and I think you will love it. Thank you. 
I'll tell you candidly, and I'm not proud of it, there were times when I would gift my intelligence to other members of my team and have them go in and make a presentation or them make the pitch so that the client wouldn't have to interact directly with me as an African-American or as a female. Hmm. Because you thought they wouldn't want to. In some instances, I thought it. In other instances, I knew it. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how a temporary gig as a secretary inspired Janice Bryant Howroyd to build an employment agency that turned into an empire and made Janice the first African-American woman in history to own a billion-dollar business. So hiring employees is one of the hardest things about running a business. If you've listened to this show long enough, you've heard founders talk about how when their company started to scale, hiring enough good people consumed so much of their time. Because hiring requires patience and research and, yes, luck. Even the best applicants sometimes flail after they start. And this was an insight that Janice Bryant Howroyd came across early in her career after working as a secretary for her brother-in-law. It was the late 1970s, and her brother-in-law, Tom Noonan, needed an assistant for his growing role at Billboard magazine in Hollywood. Janice noticed that lots of other executives in Hollywood needed clerical help too, and they needed it fast. They just didn't have the time to find the right people. So with all of her money, which was $1,500, Janice rented a small space in front of a rug shop in Beverly Hills, and she started an employment agency. At the time, Janice was a young African-American woman starting out in an industry dominated by older white men. Now, today, her company, Act One Group, does an estimated billion dollars a year in sales. Act One handles hiring and recruiting for all kinds of industries, and it also provides a lot of back-end services like employee screening and payroll. But when it began, it was just one office, one phone, and Janice. She opened that first office in a city she barely knew when she first arrived to L.A. in her mid-20s. Janice had spent most of her life in a very different place from Hollywood. She grew up in the 1950s and 60s in a big family in the small town of Tarboro, North Carolina. I grew up on the other side of the tracks, and that's literally the case because we did have a train that ran through our town. We were uh, a town that was incorporated in the 1700s, so a train track in the middle of the town did indicate some level of prosperity. Mm. Now, we were segregated, make no make no mistake about that, but we had that Southern etiquette that went along with it, so there was a politeness that occurred amongst people, but we all also were very aware of the injustices. Hmm. How many how many brothers and sisters did you have growing up? Five brothers, five sisters, all type wow. A's. So 11 kids in your house. Yeah, you say that like that sounds so much <laughs> to you. <laughs> yeah, it does. It sounds like a lot of kids. It sounds like a, a chaotic house. 
Oh, my, no, you don't know my mom and dad if you thought there was chaos <laughs> going on in the Bryant household. As a matter of fact, we had a system where uh, the older uh, siblings would take care of the younger ones. And when I say take care, I mean they were responsible that we did chores appropriately. We had personal grooming taken care of. They checked us for and helped us with. And that homework was done. And so Sandy got me. She was first born. I was fourth born. And when she went all the way off to Greensboro, North Carolina, which by drive time is about um, four hours, it felt like the end of the world had happened huh. for me. I, it, hmm. the, everything just felt so empty to me. Yet there were still 12 people left in the house every day if we had no guests come over. Did your parents, I mean, was there ever a sense that, you know, that they were struggling or did it always feel like you had everything you needed as a kid? Guy, I remember sitting in a class and I had what Oprah later coined aha moment. And I remember sitting in class and thinking, wow, we're poor. Had huh. no concept of poverty growing up. You had no idea. None at all. We always had enough for us and some to share. And that meant clothing, that meant food, and that also meant emotional support. When you were, um, when you were little, did you... Would you dream about what you would be when you grew up or did you already have big ambitions as a kid or or were they kind of like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll see what happens? Now, see, print media was really the thing that taught me so much and books, print, period. My mom bought encyclopedias and then she paid them off over time. She also had periodicals that came to our house. There was a magazine called Sipia. There was Ebony was popular. Jet Magazine was popular back then. And so I knew a lot about the world and I knew a lot about what black people were doing. And so I had role models who uh, fulfilled thoughts about what I might do when I grew up. Um, but as a very young child, I remember admiring my mom so much, which I continue hmm. to do to this day. She, even then, I could sense, even though I couldn't put label to it, was quite an efficient person. And she ran our home like a business. And what did your dad do? My dad was a foreman. He was a foreman in a dye factory. You know, we're a textile community mm. in North Carolina. Mm. And dad was very integrated in our lives. He made sure that we had our Thursday family meetings. Thursday was payday. And we all had to gather around and we discussed what we'd done, what we would be doing. Uh, in business, we say we discuss the gaps and we brought forward the solutions. And my mm -hmm. family dad just said, let's see where we are and where we're going, kids. That was always his open wow. comment to us. Janice, when you were when you were a girl, when you were a kid, did you see entrepreneurs around you, either in your community or, or in your family? Retrospectively, I saw them growing up. I did not know that's what I was looking at. I remember Grandma Dora walking around Tarboro in high heel shoes coming over to our house and they ran a barbecue shop and they had a home that had a beautiful dining room in it, but their dining room was to serve their customers. Oh, they ran it out of their home? Yeah, and white people would come over to eat there, 
uh, which was a big deal that they were coming over to have dinner there, lunch there. But I didn't look at that as entrepreneurship back Hmm. then. That's just what grandma did, you know. I also saw her run, um, she fed people to-go bags where they would come and buy their lunches or dinners at the back. And she would charge based on who was working and who was out of work. And she had that sense of justice in her mind about how to run her business. And um, I think it paid off because she did quite well. Hmm. So, so Janice, I read that um, when you were in high school, your mom and dad decided to send you to a an all-white high school. You were going to be the first African-American student at that school. What do you remember about about your first day going in there? Well, mom and dad didn't send me. We decided as a family that that would happen. Our community wanted to have our best and brightest go to the white school to lessen any fear around whether or not the school would uh, dilapidate in any way by our uh, attending it. And I was one of the first. And I remember my first day going into my English class and I thought, oh, English has always been one of my better subjects, and I'm going to fail because I couldn't understand my English teacher. She had a twang that sounded so different to me from my side of Tarboro. Mind you, we're talking about a distance that I could walk to school from my home. Wow. Uh, But she sounded so different. The communities were truly divided in that way. Yeah. And... We had a teacher who stood up on the desk that day, the first day I went into his history class, and explained so eloquently, if you can even see the paradox of that, how blacks were so suited to slavery. Wow. I remember chewing so hard, saying, God, please don't let me cry. If you just let me get out of here without crying, I'll never come back. That's how intimidated, how fearful, and how foreign I felt in a U.S. history class. Did you want to stop going to that school? I mean, I could imagine being a 16-year-old, 15, 16-year-old kid and, and feeling that level of hostility and then hearing a teacher say that, somebody with power to, to say that. I absolutely did want to stop going, and I told my dad I didn't want to go back, and dad gave me three options. He said, you can come back here and compete against other black kids who are going to need scholarships to go to school. He could go up and he could floor the teacher and uh, seek retaliation. (laughs) Or I could go back and I could understand, and this is something that if you say to many black people, they will finish this sentence for you. It's not what they call you. It's what you answer to. Hmm. And that was my first big lesson from dad that I should not listen to what they called me. I could only be what I answer to in life. Hmm. So you uh, you graduated high school, mm-hmm. and then you went off. Uh, you went off to college uh, to North Carolina A and T. Um, what do you What do you remember about that time? I loved that campus, and that's where my older siblings had gone. It it was such a wonderful time to be at North Carolina A&T when I graduated. Everybody was full of promise and ideas about what we could do. So much of my adult framing happened on that campus. And by the time I started my own business, I was able to reach back 
on what I had learned in my home, which is where I gained most of my business education was in my mm-hmm. home, and the ability to to meet new people and not as strangers that I learned at A&T. That was so wonderful. Yeah. And what did you do when you graduated? First, I worked in the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. I worked there for about a year and a half, and I went home to visit mom and dad. And I remember one morning, my mom and dad, when we were kids, early morning was always their time. I told you dad left for work really early in the mornings, and their date time was early morning. And they dated in the kitchen in the little bay window where she has a table there to this day. And I got up to walk through the hall, and I saw them kissing and hugging just just like teenagers. And I thought, ooh, you know, I'm an adult by then, right? (laughs) That was the last time my mom saw my dad alive. Um, And I many times since then have thought, if you have to say goodbye what a wonderful way for her to know that the last time he saw her alive, he held her and loved her so richly, and she, him. Did he have a heart attack? My dad had taken two young men out on the waters in North Carolina, shrimp boat fishing. Hmm. They were on a shrimp boat, and a storm came up. Hmm. Um, my dad was taken in the storm. Wow. And so... I remember my mom took to her bed for a couple of weeks, and I had booked a ticket to come to California to visit my sister Sandy. And I remember um, I told my mom, I'll stay here with you, Mom, and Mm. help you. My mom had been married since she was a teenager. She'd never had any other boyfriend. And I knew there would be some heavy adjustment for her. And she said, "Um, no. I'm going to have to learn to live on my own. I better do it now. And then um, she said, the last thing Dad would want is for me to stop you living your dream because we certainly certainly have lived ours. Wow. So you you leave North Carolina. I mean, what a what a what a moment um, in your life, in your mom's life, in your family's life. I mean, this is like late 70s yeah and so you come to LA to visit your sister and it was it was supposed to be just a quick visit to 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 see her a couple days or weeks or something like that I had a couple of weeks planned it was going to be a Mm. good visit two weeks back then was a long time still is yeah and you were just a kid I mean you were in your mid-20s right or early 20s at that point I was hot and popping Although, let me tell you, when I got to L.A., I didn't think so. On the East Coast, I thought I was all of that. When I got to L.A. (laughs) and I saw all these women who worked without pantyhose on, they carried purses with somebody else's name on it, Louis Vuitton. (laughs) And um, I was calling it Louis Vuitton. And um, they were all, all all the black people, all the black women I saw were, were, were like fabulous, gorgeous women. And I felt like this little nappy-headed colored girl coming out of North Carolina amongst all these fabulous people. No, I didn't feel all hot and popping then. <laughs> what was your first impression of, of L.A. at that time? I mean, this is like the late 70s. It was... Palm trees, 
gorgeous, gorgeous palm trees. And, you know, you go up and drive all the way up and look out over the city. And it was just so beautiful, so beautiful. Mm. L.A. was wide open. It, it truly was a fairy tale kind of existence for me. And I wanted in on it. You wanted to stay. I I didn't at first. I needed to sustain my stay financially because my sister kept saying stay. I'm the first family member she's got out here from home. So Sandy and and her husband Tommy, he he worked at 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 Billboard magazine. Is that right? He did. He had worked mm. at Motown for years and uh, helped move Motown out to L.A. And then right. he went to Billboard. You know, his career had been in the music industry. I remember seeing his name scroll the year he died at the Grammys. And Tommy invented what they call the Hot 100s chart. Oh, the Billboard Hot 100, yeah. Yes. To this day, I keep meeting people who just have such great memories of him, and certainly I do. He was an incredible, incredible first-generation Irishman. So you... You go out to L.A. to see your sister and her husband, your brother-in-law, Tommy, says, hey, you know, I, I may have some temp work for you at, at, at Billboard, and, and, and that's what you did. You kind of went to his office and worked, kind of worked for him? Yeah. She and Tommy were going to a NIMIC conference in Italy, and um, when he came back, I had reorganized things, put things in a form as I saw they should be. And he thought I had worked magic. I thought I did what I was supposed to do. And he said, you know, you don't, uh, you, you, you really are good, Janice. You should not go back without proving you can make it on your own. And he was the one who seeded the idea that I should hang my own shingle. You were looking for work and, and your brother-in-law Correct. essentially says, Hey, Janice, why don't you just open up a business and uh, <laughs> you've got your job? You've got your own job. He absolutely did. It was that simple for him. He later told me he saw so much enterprise, entrepreneurship in me that I wasn't seeing in myself. So what was the business idea that you guys started to talk about? I actually started as a full-time agency. Meaning what? Uh, we were finding, I, I found people full-time jobs. You were like a headhunter, sort of. Yeah, at the admin level. So what? once you decided that you were going to start this company, this agency to help place people in, in jobs, uh, what was your first move? What, I mean, where, where did you get an office? How did you how did you start it? I made a deal with a guy who owned a rug shop, and I set up office in front of the rug shop. It was where was the very, rug shop? Very beautiful in Beverly Hills. In Beverly Hills. Yeah, location, location, location. You wanted a Beverly Hills address to say? No, hey, I, I had no. a friend who hooked me up with someone who had a Beverly Hills location. Yeah. I was not looking at real estate that way, but it worked out perfectly. The stars were aligned for me. And what did you call it? What did you call the company? Act One. As in Act One, like when you're in a movie. <laughs> that kind of Act One? You know, because it's located here in uh, Los Angeles uh, area, uh, many people thought that. But for me, it was more around the biblical sense, the book of Acts. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. So you get get this office space and what, you put in a desk and a phone and, and there you go. To. You start... It was there. Didn't have to. It was no. there. And it worked out very well for me. But I'll tell you something. When I did get my own office, the, I remember the first day I got a 
fax machine. Do you know who Judy Jetson is? Sure, of course. Yeah. I thought I was Judy Jetson. Technology hit hard for me. Yes, that was incredible for me. And it also taught me the power of technology. And I think that's why over the years, my company has evolved more around how we build human-friendly technology than anything else. When you started Act One, did you need a lot of a lot of startup money to get it going? I borrowed money from my mom, and I had saved nine hundred and borrowed six hundred from her. But so you had fifteen hundred dollars to start this yep. business. Yeah. And that was going to get you the office, a lease on the office, and I guess a phone. But here's what I'm, I'm trying to understand: You're so young, and you just you essentially just got there. So how did you even start? How did you even find people to to recruit, to say, hey, I, you know, you're looking for work? I can help you. Well, finding people to place was not an issue during that mm. time. Uh, finding the jobs was. And the core of our business remains today as it was when I was one desk. And that's understanding the power of the interview. Understand? I mean, you've talked with me for a few minutes now. You know a lot about me and you know sure. a lot of resources to go to gain more information. And that's the way the interview worked as well. So the power of that interview enabled me to make sure that I understood the individual who was looking for work. I knew where they'd already worked. I knew if they were already employed that once they left, there was going to be an opening there. And because of the rich network that I was able to achieve in the social side of how I lived with my brother and sister, I knew people who were looking for assistance, people who were mm. looking for people to hire and built it on that. In the early days, I call it the womb, word of mouth, baby. I got I got most of my leads toward opportunities to fill positions and most of the leads toward applicants by word of mouth. So your business model was you'd help companies fill these jobs, mostly clerical jobs, and they would pay you a fee. And how were you able to guarantee that the person you were offering was going to work out? Oh my goodness, there were so many different guarantees that were offered in our industry back then. I haven't thought about this for years, but that's the risk you take on making sure that you're making a good placement. And that's yeah. why I say we had to focus on the applicant because you you offered people money back. If they didn't work out, then you know, you had you, you had a reduction in that fee. You got and you got you had to pay that money back if they didn't last. So, nobody wanted to do that. Were you were you profitable pretty quickly, or did it take some time? Um, actually, thinking back on it, hitting profitability in a year seems pretty good, but yeah. living through it, it didn't. But mm -hmm. remember, I was in a very low overhead business, and I was in a business that had high transaction. I was as good as my effort allowed me to be. Yeah. In those early days, as you you know, as you start to grow, um, things were things were like kind of hectic. In the in the midst of this, you like you got married too, right? Like in the early eighties. Well. I met my husband at an industry conference, uh, Bernie. I saw this guy, and he was really handsome to me. He had this presence about himself. And he also spoke with this English accent. 
But he liked me a lot more than I did him. I noticed him. I can't say I didn't <laughs> notice him. But he liked me a lot more than I liked him. And he he chased me for a bit. And um, I found out that he was the founder of Apple One. And Apple One was a temporary employment agency. It was Apple One was Apple One was a really respected temporary employ, uh, hmm. and full time placement agency, uh, doing business in California. So you married essentially your competitor. How did you keep like work and personal life separate? I think it would be the same as if we had been physicians or scientists we are going to share a love of the industry and talk about it and we're still competent capable people building a business and so when was it clear to you that this wasn't just going to become sustainable but this could actually become really big business was it was it within a year was it within two years was it after that no 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 i would say it was about um Oh, I want to say six or seven years in. And I remember a lady named Gwen Moore. Mm -hmm. Gwen Moore was an elected official, congresswoman out of California here. And she had been very active in championing, and I believe she was one of the original authors of legislation that required public utility companies in California to have diversity spend because she said your rate payers are diverse so you should be doing business with them and she contacted me and she said I want to come see you and she met with me and she told me that I had an obligation to get certified to to do what as a minority woman-owned company and I didn't want to do that I was doing very well thank you and she said no it's not about you doing better although you will She said, it's about you creating the opportunity for others who won't get a shot. She said, we need some strong businesses that are run by women and run by minorities to certify and go in and do business as such to open the door for others. And even when she was arguing the point as eloquent, as clear as she is, I wasn't getting the point because Uh, Initially, I thought that certification was a strip search. I needed to open up my business to total exposure to someone to, in return, have them come back and say, yes, you are a minority. Yes, you are a woman. And yes, you are running this business. And it just did not align with how I felt that I wanted to uh, be measured. When we come back in just a moment... Why Janice wound up changing her mind about that and how she turned Act One into a billion-dollar business. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. TurboTax makes all your moves count filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. As a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. 
B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. Now, picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass helps you actually do it. There are over 200 classes to pick from, like Anna Wintour's Masterclass on Creativity and Leadership that's helped lots of people learn new ways to nurture talent and make bold decisions, two things that are essential for any leader or entrepreneur. Plus, Every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com built. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com built. Masterclass.com built. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. So it's 1992, and Janice Bryant Howroyd's L.A.-based employment agency, Act One, is doing pretty well. And after some back and forth, she eventually decides to get certified as a woman and minority-owned enterprise. Becoming certified opened up many new client opportunities for me because now companies could look at me as look at my business as an opportunity to meet numbers and quotas that they had around uh, inclusion, diversity and inclusion. And if it became a choice between me and another company who was not certified, I was going to get that opportunity. I'd never known that existed before I got yeah. certified. And so that's when I started to expand into contract business. Before then, I was doing business on handshakes or on service agreements. But once I started to go after different types of business, I needed to do it in contracts and had to learn a lot about the process. And one of the failures I've seen occur in my own business as in others is that we create great relationships with people and companies and definitely we should do that but people are moving all of the time and the agreement you have with a person it may not align with the agreement you have in that contract and when that person Mm. is gone that contract is still standing and so you've got to understand the difference between that and that was one of the biggest lessons I had to learn once I started to expand my business from focusing on one on one transactions into contract work Mm. I mean I just keep thinking I mean it seems like you were growing pretty fast so your head must have been spinning 
Well, let me tell you two things about that. One, the big thing for me was not so much the exponential growth as it was the adoption of doing the temp work and bringing temp into the fold. Hmm. Temp work, you're paying people long before the client pays you. And so there's another element of risk in there. You're also the employer of that worker. And so you assume the employer risks. So you've got two dynamic, new and very strong differences uh, in place here. And you're competing against larger entities who are going in and able because of their scale to offer a much better pricing. And you are, for for me and many companies like me, woman-owned, you were the minority company or you were the diverse company. So you were getting yeah. one-tenth of that business against one larger vendor. And I still had to meet the same pricing as the larger company. To do that efficiently, to do that sustainably, I needed to integrate technology in a different way. And I didn't find any over-the-shelf technology. So that's when I started to hire people and we built our own technology solutions. And I guess we should just mention here, Janice, that uh, that some of the solutions that you came up with internally, they, these actually became a huge part of your business. Yeah. So our technology suite is called Acceleration. And it really was about that detailed reporting we were able to give to clients that they weren't getting anywhere else. And so I had a client up north who had a very bad experience with a publicly held company call me on a Friday morning and ask if I would come up. So I actually ran over to the airport with my brother, another employee, and the three of us went up north at Northern California to the client. Hmm. And we found out that they had an issue where this publicly held company was not negotiating well with them and had walked out. And they had several hundred temps who had to be paid. And we had to get all of that work together, transition those people. And on Monday morning, all of the work was done. Everyone was paid and they had reports on their desk. Wow! I got a call from the lady who was head of HR and said, my goodness, Janice, how were you able to do this? And I explained that we used for her what we use in our own company technologies that enable us to do that. And she said, we've been working with this company for 12 years and they've never been able to give us the detail of reporting that you have here. And they started to want um, conversations around how to buy my technology. And my brother Carlton said, Janice, let's pause. Don't sell them the technology, sell them the service. Yeah. I said, Carlton, what are you? He said, no, don't sell your technology to them. Sell them the service. And we went up and had a different conversation with them. And they became our first acceleration customer. Hmm. And I guess I should mention here, Janice, that, that you mentioned your brother. Several members of your family actually work for, for the company for Act One. Absolutely. My sister, Sandy, was my first employee. And since then, I went on to hire seven other siblings into my business. And they have just been incredible for all of those emotional and those uh, value support systems that you need in place as you're growing a business up. Everyone needs that. I needed that. And I had that in siblings. Now, one of the things that I insisted for my family members before they could come into my company is that they either had to work for three years in a larger company somewhere else 
jobs or have three promotions before they could come to work for me. I wanted to make sure that they brought into my business some learning, not just the abilities to sustain for three years, but the ability to have learned and have grown within someone else's organization and then bring that value into mine. I, I guess at a certain point, this is like 2007, 2008, you know, your business is worth well over half a billion dollars by that point, and you decide to merge with Bernard's business, with your husband's business. Tell me why Why did that happen? Did that just, was it just the sort of the natural point to kind of bring your businesses together? When Bernie and I were leaving a conference in San Diego, we decided to take the scenic route back to L.A. And we were having a discussion about our children. And I remember my brother had said to me, Carlton had said, you know, Janice, you and Bernie have something that nobody else in this industry has. And I asked him what he meant. He said, well, you guys work from completely different sets of strengths oftentimes. And if you were to combine that, that could be dynamic in the industry. Mm. And I thought that was nice, and I mentioned it to Bernie. And Bernie said, that makes sense. I said, but it's not enough to, to, to merge our companies, and we talked more. And then I said, you know, Bernie, I think the thing that would make it interesting for me is that our son not have to decide which one of us he wants to work for. Because by then, our son was looking at our industry as a future for himself. And he had worked in my company. He had worked in his dad's company as a kid. And I said, Bernie, I don't think he should have to make a choice. And it is a lot better secession planning for us to go ahead and do this now. Let's not have him have to do it later. And that was the decision. That was the thought around how we would blend the companies. Janice, I'm wondering, you know, looking back as as your company grew, I mean, for, for a long time, you were a minority within a minority. You, you were a small company with big competitors. Um, you were a woman of color in an industry that was... I'm assuming dominated by by white men. Um, did you run into circumstances, a lot of circumstances, where you you were judged because of who you are, or 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 where things were made much harder because of who you are? Very often, very often, hmm. um, I, I I ran into that. I'll tell you candidly, and I'm not proud of it. There were times when I would gift my intelligence to other members of my team and have them go in and make a presentation or them make the pitch so that the client wouldn't have to in interact directly with me as an African-American hmm. or as a female. Well, but, but because you thought they wouldn't want to? In some instances, I thought it. In other instances, I knew it. Hmm. That if they saw an African-American woman making the pitch, they they wouldn't want to work with you? I think the questioning and the scrutiny would be different. There would be more question of can we than how will we. Right. Whereas if I sent someone different on my team in, the questions around how are we going to do this happened a lot quicker in the conversation. And there are women who will tell you today that's still the case. How, 
how have you sort of grown as a leader over that time? I mean, were there things that you did earlier on that were mistakes that you learned from and you thought, well, th- you know, th- that, that was not the way to go? Certainly, I've made mistakes. Uh, The bigger of my mistakes were the mistakes I made where I have held myself back because of things that were uh, latent from my childhood and sometimes very active, you know, in businesses around the isms, whether that be racism or sexism or whatever. But those have been where I think my bigger errors have been made. When you you say when you held yourself back by... For example, by not taking those meetings or by sending somebody else in your your place, what what other what other ways did did you hold yourself back? Um, holding myself back from uh, taking risks around expanding or investments that weren't right in the core of what I'm mm. doing. But I always I always saw myself as you know driving in my lane and understanding where my lane was. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it sounds like even though you have had incredible success, you, by nature, you're not a, sort of a kamikaze risk taker. Well, I'm not going to be the bull in the china shop, if that's mm. what you're saying. <laughs> I'm not going to ru- rush through and, you know, break things on the way toward a higher goal. Uh, perhaps the one decision I would change if in my career would be that I would forgive myself for being smart and being female a lot Mm. sooner. Everything else, I think, has been integrated toward the good of a solid business that has a strong future. Today, Act One is either the largest or or certainly one of the largest privately held women and minority-owned workforce management companies in the U.S. Your, you and your family own this company, I believe, 100% outright. This is a billion-dollar business. I mean, that's that's amazing. I mean, it's. I mean, just think about that for a moment. You came to L.A. for a two- or three-week trip and built a billion-dollar business. It's a blessing. This is what we built. This is what all of the people who really believed in me and trusted in me have built. And in our company, we teach that there are five things you can't teach people. You can't teach people experience. Mm. You can't teach people common sense. You can't teach people confidence. You cannot teach people anything if they don't want to learn it and you can't teach them anything if they know it all and I think when I look at where you see the amazement in building a billion dollar uh, enterprise I think it's because those things that you can't teach I've learned Hmm. how much of all that you've achieved do you think is because of the hard work you put in and your determination and your skill and and how much just because of luck? I don't think luck had anything to do with it. I do believe that I've been blessed and I have received those blessings by honoring them with hard work. All of the challenges, all of the people, all of the clients and applicants My life has been a kaleidoscopic opportunity. I I keep going back to to that moment where your your mom 
in mourning told you to leave, told you to go. She did. That your dad would want you to to pursue whatever it was that you were going to pursue. And you didn't know what that was going to be, right? I mean, yeah. can you imagine what your dad would make of this? Like his daughter running the largest women and minority-owned business of this kind in the world? I mean, <laughs> what do you think he would he would say or, or, or think? I absolutely can't imagine what dad would say or what dad would think. My dad is the one who told us it was our attitude, not our aptitude. My dad was the one who told us education is freedom. My dad was the one who taught us that we wake up on purpose, you know? And, 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 and I, I think about him so often, and you can't not think about him when you're with mom. I was, um, voted princess in high school and I remember asking for a new gown to wear on a float and dad said oh we can't afford it we worked so hard for you guys and I remember my mom putting her hand on my dad's hand and said no daddy they called each other mommy and daddy she said no daddy don't tell Janice we work hard for our kids we work hard because of the decisions we made and I've kept that in my mind as I built my business. And I've made a point never to tell my children, I don't work hard to give them what they want. I work hard because of the decision I've made, you know. And for me, it's a joy. It's a joy to do what I do. That's Janice Bryant Howroyd, founder and CEO of Act One Group. And unfortunately, we've got a sad update to this story Earlier this year, Janice's husband, Bernard, passed away. He'd been suffering from Alzheimer's for several years. And in an interview after his passing, Janice said, quote, I would never say Bernie was the most perfect creature, but he was the most perfect husband, and he loved me well. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. And on Instagram, it's at guy.raz. Please also remember to visit donate.npr.org slash built to give directly to a local NPR member station. This episode was produced by James Delahousie with music composed by Rabteen Arablui. Thanks also to Farah Safari, Liz Metzger, Dareth Gales, Julia Carney, J.C. Howard, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking, what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami? There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Man. 
Each week on Alternative Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.